Hello and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 8, Attila Invictus. So I'm back, with new equipment and feelings of guilt over the long delay between episodes. There aren't really a massive number of you at this point, but there are enough of you to fill a medium-sized lecture hall, and I feel a certain responsibility to you. So, apologies for the delay. We will be getting back on track from here on out. And Happy New Year, everybody. Today, I'm going to talk about the most famous man of late Roman antiquity, Attila the Hun. Write out a list of everyone I've talked about in the last seven episodes, and take that into work. I will bet you Attila is the only name that anybody recognizes, or most people recognize. And then tell them about the podcast. Maybe borrow their phone, get them subscribed to it. A download is a download, and I'm not picky or scrupulous about how I get them. Anyway, Attila the Hun, Prince of the World, Ruler of all Scythia, the Scourge of God. When Theodosius's prayers for the destruction of Rua were answered, it was clear very quickly that this was a case of the Lord giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Rua, you may or may not remember, had ruled a vast territory and demanded tribute from the Eastern Romans. At the same time, his men were very much for sale and worked as mercenaries and bodyguards in both eastern and western halves of the empire. His nephews, Bleda and Attila, initially maintained that status quo. It seems that Aetius in the West continued to have a largely positive, or at least mutually beneficial, relationship with the Huns, while in the East, both parties continued to list their relationship status as complicated. Is that joke even relevant anymore? Social media isn't really my thing, which is obvious to anyone who's ever checked out the podcast Twitter account. Anyway, the two brothers couldn't have been more different. Their personalities come down to us through the accounts of diplomats. Blado was apparently boisterous and ready for a laugh, while Attila was serious, quick to anger, and impatient. It wasn't obvious at first that too much had changed with the brothers' accession. The Huns were actively on campaign in Moesia at the time of Rua's death in 435, and the transition seemed to take place fairly smoothly. The envoys who had been sent to negotiate for the withdrawal of Rua continued on to Blada and Attila with the same mission. Led by an official named Plintha, they weren't in a strong position. Decades of war along the Danube frontier had left it dangerously undermanned, and the idea of ejecting the Huns by force wasn't much more than a pipe dream. So Attila and Blada, or their representatives, were more or less able to name their price. The two sides met at the city of Margus. Sitting astride their horses, even while negotiating, as was their custom, the Huns demanded that the tribute formerly paid to Rua be doubled to 700 pounds of gold per year. As always, the issue of fugitives being sheltered by the Romans came up, and the Romans agreed to surrender those that remained inside the empire. Romans taken prisoner were ransomed back at eight solidi ahead, and markets were open to the Hun traders. Having gotten literally everything they had asked for, the Huns withdrew. What the Huns did after they delivered this diplomatic walloping is not visible to us in any great detail. Presumably, Attila and Bleda used some of the time they had won consolidating and extending their power on the steps. There is a line in Priscus's account that suggests what the brothers were up to. 
After the Treaty of Margus, Attila and Bleda, quote, went on subduing the nations in Scythia and made war upon the Sorosci. End quote. Problem is that the Sorogsi aren't mentioned anywhere else, so we can't even say which direction the new kings turned. On most maps, you'll see that the Huns' holdings at this point have a solid border at the Danube and the rest of the Roman frontier, and a kind of gradient fading out to the edges in every other direction. We can't be sure of the borders of the Huns' empire, both because of the generally vague nature of the steppe's terrain, and because the sources are themselves vague and confused. Priscus says that Attila ruled all of Scythia, whatever that means. In the west, we know that the Huns were pushing that direction, but had not yet reached the Rhine, since German kingdom still existed on the east bank. They were, though, feeling the pressure, as refugees fled ahead of the Hunnic conquerors. To the east, Bleda and Attila's domain extended toward the Caspian Sea, and from the Alps to the Baltic Sea, north to south. We don't know how the two divided this vast realm between them, or exactly how they went about imposing their will. There's also the question of what we mean by ruling. Now, we are used to define borders. This side of the line is California. That side of the line is Oregon. On this side, you can pump your own gas. On that side, you cannot. Things were much woollier in late antiquity, and really through most of human history. It's possible Attila received tribute from very far afield, deep into the northern forests and eastern plains, and then could use that to imply control over the territory where the reality on the ground was very different. While we call Attila and Bleda rulers of the Huns, the continuous appearance of fugitive tribes within the Roman Empire suggests that their authority wasn't absolute or unquestioned. The Emperor Theodosius II used this time of relative peace to improve the walls of Constantinople, so at least he made some contribution to the walls that bear his name, even though he can't be credited with their initial creation. You may remember Anthemius was the one who did that. Specifically, Theodosius ordered the walls would be extended on both ends to eliminate weak points where they met the sea. In 435, Theodosius was 34 years old, and it's about time we cast him in our movie. Um, well, maybe Jason Bateman. Yeah. It's kind of hard to get a handle on Theodosius too, Theodosier, because there's a cloud of other powerful characters around him. It can be tough to see where they end and the Emperor begins. He's not so thoroughly useless as his cousin Honorius, remember he of the chicken, played by Topher Grace, but he's certainly not his grandfather either. It starts with Anthemius, continues on through a pile of other generals and advisors, most notably his older sister, who either pushed Theodosius around or provided him with able assistance, depending on the source. If I don't get an opportunity to highlight Theodosius's sister Pulcheria in the main narrative, I may just have to write a bonus episode about her, as she's quite something. Though the Treaty of Margus was clearly a diplomatic defeat for the Romans, it's also clear that Theodosius and his government did not take it terribly seriously. A show was made of rounding up some prisoners and refugees and returning them to the Huns' territory, but tribes that provided units to the Roman army remained right where they were, and it appears that not one solidus of the agreed tribute crossed the river. The Romans got away with that for about five years, in part because conditions in the Balkans were recovering a bit. Anthemius's fleet still patrolled the Danube, the garrisons of Moesia were being reinforced and fortifications rebuilt, and Attila and Bleda were apparently busy tightening their grip on the tribes of the steppes. But 
good things can't last forever. This will be a recurring pattern. I should note, if I haven't already, that the Huns were of course ferocious and of course a real threat. They were also masters of timing. The great raids of 408 and 422 took place when the Empire was distracted by other threats or internal disruptions. That doesn't mean that the Huns were cowards, of course. It means that they had good intelligence. And in 440, the greatest opportunity in their history presented itself. In 439, the Vandals had captured Carthage. We haven't talked about the Vandals much except in passing. It's a flaw in this particular narrative approach. What's important is that the fall of Carthage focused the attention of both Rome and Constantinople. Africa was a major source of food for the empire, both east and west, as well as being a central port that allowed the Vandals to range across the Mediterranean at will, raiding and pillaging. An expeditionary force was put together from both halves of the empire to retake the city. Field armies were pulled out of the Balkans for that campaign, and ships were reassigned away from the Danube patrols. To make matters worse, the Persians chose that moment to invade Armenia, further distracting Constantinople from the now wide-open Danube frontier. To make matters even worser, the African campaign was an embarrassing failure, leading to the loss of a significant and irreplaceable chunk of manpower. All the Huns needed now was an excuse. The story that's told is that the Bishop of Margus, for reasons known only to himself, slipped across the river and desecrated and robbed some Hun grave sites on the other side. We don't know anything about this man, not even his name, but based on his later behavior, the story doesn't really seem too far-fetched. The Huns responded by attacking one of the trading posts over on their territory. They took the garrison by surprise, killed many, and expelled the traders. The Romans protested, though when the bishop's behavior was pointed out, apparently the Roman ambassadors had no answer and just had to shuffle their feet and stare at the ground. The Huns crossed the Danube and raided through the countryside. They scored their first really painful hit with the capture and storm of Viminacium. Viminacium was the provincial capital of Moesia Superior and had a population between 30 and 40,000. The Huns razed it to the ground. In the words of Procopius, it was destroyed from the bottom of its foundations. The city would remain completely abandoned for over a hundred years until it was rebuilt by Justinian. Its ruins are near the modern town of Kostolash in Serbia, by the way. There is no way I pronounce that right. This was destruction on a whole new scale. Moesia had suffered terribly at the hands of the Goths, but the complete and wanton destruction of an entire city was another matter entirely. Terror spread across the province, and the population of Margus turned against that bishop of theirs. They demanded that he be turned over to the Huns. Apparently he caught wind of this, and following the first rule of a PR crisis management, got out in front of it. He slipped out of the city and made a separate deal with Attila and Bleda. They moved their force ten miles south to Margus and waited. He opened the gates and vanished into Scythia, where he could hide from the emperor's inevitable vengeance. There is no further mention of what happened to him. I would like to think that he ultimately didn't last long, on the principle that traitors are generally despised by both sides of a conflict, but that's entirely my own probable wishful thinking. The consequences were just as complete as they had been at Viminacium. Margus was destroyed, and it was never rebuilt. Thanks, asshole. The Huns turned west, their rear now secure. Synigdunum, which is modern Belgrade, fell. 
and it also remained desolate until the reign of Justinian. They moved on, westward, to Sirmium. Sirmium fell. That was a really big deal. Ten emperors had been born in Sirmium. The city's population had been estimated as high as 700,000 at its peak. Though it had declined during the Gothic Wars, it remained the linchpin of the central empire, the hinge where the west turned into the east. It was positioned at the junction of the east, west, and northern frontiers. It should never have fallen to a bunch of horse archers from the back end of nowhere. But that's what made the Huns really terrifying and different. Barbarian forces had always struggled with siege warfare. Cities fell to treachery or exhaustion. More often than not, barbarian forces simply broke against the walled Roman cities. Now the Huns had stormed four major cities in a single summer. How? It's not completely clear from the sources, but an entire generation of Hunnic mercenaries had served alongside Roman legions. It's entirely possible that at least some engineering knowledge had made its way into the Huns' army. Equally possible that a few engineers had as well. The fall of Sirmium ended the campaign of 441. The Huns had put Constantinople pretty firmly over the proverbial barrel. But the next year, somehow, there was a treaty in place. We know next to nothing about the terms of that treaty. But we can make some inferences based on later events. There was certainly some provision for tribute and for hostages. We know that because failure to deliver those things would be part of the casus belli for the Huns in later conflicts. At the moment, though, Attila and Bleda were satisfied and withdrew from the devastated territories, and Theodosius scrambled to correct the problems that had led to the crisis in the first place. He was assisted in that work by his Praetorian prefect, Aspar. Aspar will be a fixture of East Roman politics for almost 50 years, so let's take a second to introduce him, and of course cast him for our movie. Aspar was the son of a Gothic commander named Artaburius, who had distinguished himself fighting against Persians, and had been on the campaign against the usurper in the west that Aetius had been too late to save. Aspar's mother was of Gothic or Alan descent, and he had accompanied his father on that campaign in the west, and rose rapidly through the ranks. He became Magister Militum and then Praetorian Prefect. That made him an equal in rank to Aetius in the West, and similarly, he was one of the great powers behind his emperor. As far as casting goes, I'm uh, going with Eric Bana. It's the Dark Eyes. Is this helpful, by the way? Please let me know. Aspar, like Stilicho before him, represented a German clique in the court of Constantinople. Also like Stilicho, that made him unpopular with other factions. Though to be fair, factions generally hate each other no matter what nationality they are. It's the nature of factions. Aspar would hang on to power quite a bit longer than Stilicho did, though. The truce with the Huns gave Aspar some breathing room, and they rushed to correct the weaknesses that the campaign in Africa had created. Ships were returned to the Danube patrols. New coinage was struck to pay newly recruited armies. And by 443, Aspar and Theodosius felt sufficiently strong to stop whatever payments they had been making to the Huns without serious consequence. They were wrong. Quick digression before I start on the War of 443. You may have noticed that I have been inconsistent about referring to Attila, Attila and Bleda, or just the Huns. There's a reason for that. At some point in this period, Bleda disappears. It's pretty much universally assumed that Attila had him murdered, though exactly when or why isn't clear. He was almost certainly dead by 445, and possibly before. 
I say we don't know why, but obviously it was to consolidate all power into Attila's hands. We just don't know the immediate circumstances. So from here on, I'll be referring to Attila as sole leader of the Huns, though it's possible or even probable that Bleda was still alive at the time of the 443 campaign. It'll just make things cleaner. Jordani's related a story that gives some idea of how Attila sold his legitimacy to his people. I should say Priscus related it, since it's just quoted in Jordani's. Quote, when a certain shepherd beheld one heifer of his flock, limping, and could find no cause for his wound, he anxiously followed the trail of blood, and at length came to a sword it had unwittingly trampled while nibbling the grass. He dug it up, and took it straight to Attila. Attila rejoiced in the gift, and being ambitious, thought he had been appointed ruler of the whole world, and that through the sword of Mars supremacy in war would be assured to him. End quote. Attila was presenting himself as a divine king with a heavenly mandate. Obviously, the god he invoked wasn't actually Mars, but whatever the native equivalent was. And the story is almost certainly entirely fabricated, probably presented for the benefit of chiefs whose loyalty Attila needed. That is a theme that will be coming up a lot in the course of the entire Dark Ages podcast, by the way. The political power of narratives. That's enough digression for now. Let's get back to the mayhem. Attila struck further east this time, crossing the river at Ratiaria in modern Bulgaria. The city fell quickly. Unlike his previous campaign, he didn't just raid up and down the borderlands along the Danube. He turned into the heart of the Balkan provinces. Priscus describes some of the mechanics of the assault that followed on Nisus, which is modern-day niche in, Bel in Bulgaria. Lots of cities that I am really doubtful of pronunciation on in this episode. Anyway, quote, the barbarians bridged the river on the southern side, so that a large number of them could easily cross. At that point, they brought machines up to the city wall. First, they brought up beams laid on wheels. Men standing on the beams shot arrows at the defenders on the ramparts. The machines were covered with hide and leather as a protection against fire and whatever projectiles were launched against them. End quote. So, the Huns are using a kind of simplified siege tower, not to directly assault the walls, but to provide superior positioning for their archers. Priscus goes on and describes battering rams, as well as ladders being used. And before too long, Nisus fell and was devastated, just like Margus and Viminasium had been before. Strategically, this was of massive importance, as Nisus sat at the intersection of three significant roads. The Via Danubia would take an army eastward through Moesia to the Black Sea. The Via Gracia led south all the way to the port city of Thessalonica, and the Via Militaria led southeast through the Hemus Mountains, straight to Constantinople. Quick side note, another digression. Some authors put the sack of Nisus as part of the 441 campaign, others here in the later attack. I've gone with the latter because it simply makes more sense to me in the context of the campaign. Second side note on geography. In past episodes, I've referred to the mountain range that separates central Bulgaria from the Danube Basin as the Balkan Mountains. From now on, I will be using the more correct and less confusing Hamus Mountains. End footnote. The Huns' mobility had always been one of their greatest advantages, and now in combination of the Roman roads, their speed seemed nearly supernatural. Leaving behind the shell of Nisus, Attila marched southeast and sacked Serdica, and then Philippopolis. He effectively had complete control of the Balkan provinces, since between Nisus and Philippopolis he controlled the major through-routes of the region. 
a few city garrisons managed to defy him. Adrianople, having withstood the Goths, also stood against the Huns, as did the port town of Heraclea. But the fortress city of Arcadiopolis fell before them, and that was uncomfortably close to the capital. And by uncomfortably close, I mean a hundred miles away. 160 kilometers, if that's your jam. The roads behind the Hun armies were clawed with wagon loads of treasure and slaves being shipped back to the home territories. The spoils were enormous. Finally, Theodosius's newly raised army moved to counter the onslaught. Commanded by Aspar and two other German generals, whose name I will not bother you with right now, the force was well led, but it was green and untested and no match for Attila. They fought a series of encounters in the country northwest of Constantinople, but the Huns dominated every one. They blew through the army like I blow through a brunch buffet. Tilla was in control of all of Thrace, but even with his relative skill at siegecraft, he knew he couldn't hope to overcome the walls of Constantinople. Instead, he busied himself crushing the last remnants of Aspar's army and waiting for the emperor to beg for terms. It didn't take long. All of the refugees and hostages that had been an issue for so long were to be surrendered at once. Presumably they would all meet horrifying fates at the hands of Attila, and many refused to go. Those the Romans simply executed, which the Huns apparently had no objection to. The tribute payments that were in arrears were to be paid immediately in full. That payment was calculated at 6,000 pounds of gold, with subsequent payments to be increased to 2,100 pounds annually. Gold ornamentation begins to appear much more frequently in Hunnic burial sites after this date. No doubt most of it sourced from the combination of the campaign's plunder and the new river of cash that now flowed northward out of Constantinople's treasury. My crude calculation puts the value of 6,000 Roman pounds of gold at $116 million today. Since we don't have a copy of the imperial budget, we can't really say whether that and the later payments were a burden. The earlier payments in the hundreds of pounds range were pretty standard subsidies in the diplomatic arsenal, so it probably wasn't back-breaking. There was no way for these payments to be spun as a subsidy or diplomatic gift, though. This was tribute, with the implied power imbalance on full display, and it was humiliating for the Romans. The end of the War of 443 brought peace of a kind to the Eastern Empire, but not tranquility. Attila continually sent ambassadors to Theodosius's court to raise some issue or other, or level some accusation of Roman acts against the treaty. Since it was a well-established custom for diplomats to be given rich gifts, Attila used these nuisance embassies to reward his followers at the empire's expense. Priscus summed up the Romans' precarious position neatly. Quote, the barbarians, seeing the Romans' generosity as they avoided transgressing the treaty, kept sending whichever of his retainers he wanted to treat well, inventing reasons and finding empty pretenses. The Romans heeded every injunction and considered the despots every command, whatever it was. Not only were they avoiding starting a war with him, but they also feared the Persians, who were in a state of preparation, the Vandals, who were drawing up in formation by the sea, the Isaurians, who were again practicing banditry, and the Saracens, who were overrunning the eastern end of their domain, and the Ethiopian races, who were unifying. End quote. The Romans were firmly chained to Attila's barrel, and had to put up with whatever he wanted to do. Don't think about that last bit too much. The Isaurians, by the way, were a tribe that occupied the mountains of central Anatolia. They were technically within the Roman Empire, but their Romanization had never been really complete, and they sometimes raided their more settled neighbors on the plains. 
I've tried to come up with a cheeky modern allegory for them, but I can't come up with anything that wouldn't offend somebody, so I'm just going to leave that there. This peace, without rest, persisted along the Danube for four years, during which time the veil is once again drawn across the Huns' activities. Attila probably spent his time making sure the parts of the realm that he had inherited from his brother remained loyal and integrated into his regime. The accounts of a few Roman embassies suggest, by their routes of travel, that he had moved into the interior of his lands, though he was still accessible to diplomats. The exact location of Attila's capital, if he had anything that could be called a capital, is unknown and probably unknowable. The Huns' lifestyle was becoming less nomadic, at least close to the empire, but they were still not, in general, building large permanent structures. A prisoner that Priscus quoted later had a few interesting things to say about the lives of his captors while they were at peace. Quote, they spend their time at ease, each man enjoying what is to hand and causing trouble and being troubled not at all. End quote. Theodosius did order that the fortifications along the Danube, where the invasion had begun, be rebuilt again, and the garrisons brought up to full strength. That task was probably completed around 443, since the official in charge was awarded with a consulship the next year. But the winter of 444-445 was especially harsh, which delayed the planting, which in turn disrupted food supplies for the capital. Riots in Constantinople killed many, and to top it all off, there was an outbreak of plague. The quiet on the northern border was really the only piece of good luck the Romans were getting. But whatever was keeping Attila busy, it wouldn't last forever. No one knows exactly what triggered the invasion of 447. It probably wasn't anything the Romans did. Their hands were full enough without picking fights with Attila. It's possible the bad times of the previous years had also affected the Huns' flocks and their subjects' fields, and Attila found he couldn't provide for his followers to the standard they'd become accustomed to. The sharing of booty and distribution of wealth was critical to the stability of Attila's regime. If that well started to run dry, it could force a raid to replenish the coffers and maybe squeeze a few more coins out of the emperor. All of that is possible, even likely, but it's impossible to say for sure. The attack came even further east this time, and bypassed all of those newly strengthened forts. In this one, the chroniclers went out of their way to mention the subject peoples that constituted part of the invading force, specifically the Gepids, who I am going to do a great disservice by not discussing in detail in this podcast, and the Ostrogoths, led by their king Valamer. The Roman run of bad luck kept on rolling. Starting in January, four months of earthquakes rocked the Eastern Empire, with Thrace, the Cyclades, and Constantinople itself all severely hit. These were accompanied by floods, and as often happens when disaster makes millions of people suddenly homeless, disease popped up again. Most terrifying to the residents of Constantinople, a huge section of the walls, including 57 towers, had crumbled into useless rubble with the earthquakes. And Attila was coming. He was met in the field much earlier this time by a Roman army led by a general named Arnagliscus, who was one of the men whose names I didn't trouble you with earlier. The armies met near the Utus River, and it was the first time the Huns had met an undivided and undistracted Roman force in battle. But it didn't matter. Arnagliscus fought bravely, but his horse was killed from underneath him, and he himself was cut down. There are no real details about how the battle proceeded from there, only that it was a defeat for the Romans, and the way to Constantinople lay wide open. Back in the city, the initial panic about the catastrophe of the walls resolved itself into a monumental effort. 
organized by the prefect Flavius Constantius, and drawing from the untapped energy of the factions that collected around chariot racers, the citizens of the capital restored the damaged walls no more than two months after they had fallen. Not only that, but a third wall was added to Anthemius's original two, so the barrier facing an invader was now a 200-foot-deep ring of fortification, overlooked by 100-foot-high missile platforms. Word of this remarkable achievement apparently reached Attila. He had taken Martianopolis, which had been Arnagliscus's command center, and rather than driving toward Constantinople, he and his armies instead ranged far and wide across the Balkans. No less than 70 towns were captured, we're told, and possibly more. The Huns drove due south straight into Greece, and were stopped only with difficulty at Thermopylae. Yes, that Thermopylae. There are frustratingly few details about the course of the invasion of 447, even less than the previous one. In the peace that was eventually reached, Attila made the extraordinary demand that a swath of territory south of the Danube, 50 miles wide and 100 long, be evacuated and given to the Huns. This was done. It's not clear that the Huns ever did anything about really occupying the territory. There's only some mentions of going hunting there, and it may just have been a demonstration of Attila's ability to smack Theodosius around. But it does give you a sense of the scale of the destruction. Marcellinus wrote that, quote, Attila ground almost the whole of Europe into dust, end quote. And the Gallic chronicler, writing just a few years after the event in the West, noted a new catastrophe raised itself up against the East, while no help was brought from the West. End quote. Which, hey, yeah, where are the armies of the West? Why is Aetius still over there sitting on his hands? The East has come to help the West plenty of times before, even just as recently as the expedition against Vandal Africa. What gives? What gives is something that needs to be pieced together a bit. Aetius, throughout this period, you may or may not remember, was kept very busy in Gaul. He was mainly occupied with Bogaude rebels and keeping the Visigoths in line. That is, when he wasn't facilitating the genocide of the Burgundians. Up through 439, he continued to employ Hunnic contingents in his armies. He also seems to have taken pains to maintain good relations with Attila, and I am understating that. He regularly sent able men to be Attila's secretaries, who could handle his Latin correspondence for him and presumably keep Aetius up to date about the Huns' thinking. One of these fell out with his new employer and was crucified, and Aetius simply sent another one. In return, Attila sent along a dwarf that had previously belonged to Bleda. Now there's a sentence that just sounds awful to a modern ear, doesn't it? Aetius even, wait for it, made Attila master of soldiers in the West. Smacked right in the gob. That's what I was when I read that for the first time. It's mitigated a bit by the fact that neither of them expected that Attila would command Roman legions. The title was fairly regularly conferred in an honorary way on foreign leaders, but it did carry a significant salary, as well as a grain subsidy. Alaric would be rolling over in his riverbed if he knew. Over the course of the 440s, though, the relationship between Attila and the West seems to have become less and less rosy. Attila was beginning to complain to Western emissaries of exactly the kind of petty grievances that he was bringing up to their Eastern counterparts. There was an issue of some of the loot from the sack of Sirmium that Attila felt had been stolen by one of those secretaries, which is a little bit hilarious. There was a Bagaudi leader who escaped from Aetius's clutches into the protection of Attila, which has to be significant. Things were deteriorating between the Western Empire and the Huns. 
As yet, though, there had been nothing so dire to make Aetius give up his still tenuous position in Gaul and march to challenge Attila. The West just wasn't strong enough to help the East, even if they'd wanted to. Ultimately, as we already know, what Aetius wanted would have very little effect on events, as Attila would take it upon himself to push his dominion all the way to the Atlantic. I'll talk about that in good time, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit. The story of Attila's success, as we've already seen, is entangled with the story of the Vandals' success. So, for now I'm going to leave the Huns hovering over the Romans and catch up on those Vandals. They've been poking around the edges of the story since the beginning, and I think it's time we found out how those Germans got all the way to Africa, what they have to do with Attila's war in the West. So next time will be the first episode on the Vandals. Don't worry, they won't take as long to introduce as the Goths, and we'll be right back with Attila before too long. I'm going to work on getting a map together of the 443 invasion, but the GIS program I've been using got all weird on me, and I need to figure it out. In the meantime, I found a neat map of the Roman road system, and we'll be linking that in the show notes along with other odds and ends that I may find. That road map can be very helpful in understanding the strategic importance of various cities in the Roman world. When next time will be is still up in the air, but it won't be more than two weeks. I think aiming for an episode every week was a touch overambitious of me. So after the new year, I'll be aiming for a bi-weekly format. It turns out that this podcasting thing is actually work, and I'm more impressed than ever by casters who can produce high-quality episodes every week, week in and week out. Props, guys. Mad props. As usual, please rate and review the cast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen, and if you haven't already, subscribe to the show. So, you know, you get the new stuff as soon as I get it done. There is still Twitter, at DarkAgesPod, Facebook page, just search Dark Ages Podcast and you should get there, and an Instagram account, also at Dark Ages Pod. I don't clog up your feed, mostly just updates of when things are dropping, so check those out if you're so inclined. Most of all, tell your friends. That's how these things grow, right? Of course it is. Alright, I think that's everything. Thank you all so very much for listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>